Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast. This free podcast is made possible through gifts by people like you. Please consider making a donation through the donate button on the website to help us offer unique audio, video, and text-based teachings on the internet and to grow this community library. Michael's teaching bridges the gap between inner healing and social change by synthesizing traditional spiritual teachings with the insights of the West. To learn about Michael's international retreats and workshops, please visit michaelstoneteaching.com. Thank you for your support. Good afternoon. So, eight days goes pretty fast. <laughs> this is our last afternoon together. And um, maybe at the beginning of the retreat you thought, now we're going to make it. <laughs> so, uh, hopefully, you felt safe enough here in this incredible building with all of these uh, supportive teachings. Maybe sometimes you fought them a little bit. I must say, knowing most of you in here quite well, that uh, it's a very rebellious group. <laughs> and you were able to notice that and put that aside because you can fight anything for days and days and days. But you'll notice when you can feel <clears throat> that the space is safe enough, then you can let your uh, defensiveness uh, melt a little bit. Or a lot. Zen teacher Shinru Suzuki says, a block of ice makes a lot of water. Can you feel that? Maybe you came to this retreat frozen in ways you didn't even realize. And then the breath starts to soften. You can take in the wind. You could open up to what's really going on. And uh, as, you, as you melt, you start to see what's frozen. And then it takes some courage to stick with that, to really sit with the frozenness day after day, the rigidity. But usually when we see the rigidity at first, we just have a lot of ideas about other things. Oh, I don't like this, I don't like that. And by focusing outside of us, it prevents us from actually getting in to the rigidity. Meeting it, or as I said the other day, saying, I see you.
There's a Belgian artist named Francis Elise, and one of my favorite pieces of his uh, was a piece he did in Mexico City, where he took a huge block of ice and he pushed it through the city. The title of the piece was Sometimes Making Something Turns Out to Be Nothing. <laughs> so you have to picture him in his khaki pants, his sweaty t-shirt, his converse, pushing this piece of ice. He's on his tiptoes, you know, with all his might, pushing this piece of ice down a sidewalk, getting it downstairs, <laughs> waiting at the cross light <laughs> until the traffic stops, and then pushing it across traffic, pushing it past people who don't notice, and pushing it past people who stop and wonder, what is this person doing? And he pushes it and pushes it. And there's a great analog film that you can watch of him pushing it through Mexico City. And then uh, at the end, it's a little piece of ice like the size of a tennis ball. And he's jumping, kicking it down the sidewalk like a little boy. That's us. In the art world, this piece was interpreted as a political piece about labor in Mexico and how people have slave wages and they're making things that end up being nothing. But I think there's so much more going on in this piece. All of us have been pushing this heavy, heavy piece of ice, frozen. Leaving a trail sometimes that other people have been slipping in. <laughs> You're so inside your frozenness, so embedded in your opinions, that uh, you don't even see the effect on everybody else. Not to mention rabbits, turtles, the whole of the natural world. So we're involved in religious life. Actually, all the practices we're doing are all practices that for 2,500 years, that's a really long time, have been monastic practice. Householders doing this practice is, a whole, is completely new. Lay people have never done practice like this in the history of these lineages. So we're stepping out of our life in a way that is quite dramatic. <clears throat> so that we can examine what it means to be born and what it means to live a life with integrity and what it means to be a person on this earth who is dying. You know, our life is not so long. <clears throat> and we start this investigation not with a system of beliefs, God, life after death, 
Who was I in a past life? How was the universe created? But we start with the ultimate koan, which is your breath, inhaling and exhaling. And we start to see that a lot of these other questions are all secondary to what's actually happening in this moment. There are gods. If you don't think there are gods, you should go out into the forest at nighttime. Walk around for a while. But the questions and absoluteness that we create, the conceptual scaffolding we create on top of just this moment is all secondary to what's really important for living a life that matters and being engaged in this world to live with clarity. And the Buddha called uh, this way of living with innate clarity uh, Nibbana, which is the Pali word for Nirvana, uh, the deathless, or sometimes he called it the unconditioned. And so if you've gone through this text, you've seen this word Nibbana a lot. And probably if you've been a little bit interested in any kind of spiritual teaching from the East, you've seen this word Nirvana a lot. And I think um, it begins with the Buddha leaving home and seeing that the uh, privileged life he had with all the pleasures he could uh, muster or be given um, still weren't giving him a satisfactory response to what it means to be alive. Do you ever have this feeling? Like maybe just watching your breath? I have this feeling whenever I walk out of a hospital. Whenever I've been in a hospital, either something for myself or, or visiting somebody in a hospital, or you go to a birth or a death, and you walk out of the hospital, and the world is stunning. And it doesn't make any sense. Have you ever had this experience? Or you've been ill in bed for days or weeks, and one day you open the door and you just walk outside, and there's this sublime quality of life. But at the same time, it doesn't make any sense. And maybe the depth of you feeling how impossible it is to understand why we're here becomes the depth of your insight. And this was the whole story of the Buddha, that the depth of his doubt about his life became the depth of his awakening. So we have to allow this in. The impossibility of knowing any of these things. Why are we here? I would like for us to take our lives more seriously. If you hang out on Facebook, we're told that you should just have more fun and you should take more selfies.
and you should just buy everything you want. And we all fall for that in different ways, I think. Me included. All of us, we fall for this. But there's no one there telling us, take your life seriously. Everything you do matters. In your own heart and also in the collective body, the body politic. So in meditation, we suspend our urgencies and our compulsiveness and we breathe in and we breathe out and we listen to sound and we come back into our life so that we can love and be more open and be more vulnerable and not just vulnerable in an emotional sense but allow ourselves to feel the vulnerability of being alive right now being a person right now so precious that each of you get to be here so the buddha talks about it using three words the first is amrita which he calls the deathless Amrit is where you get the English word mortal. It's also where you get the English word meal, which means to grind down. And Amrita means uh, not mortal, deathless. And he uses the word nirvana, which means to blow out or to extinguish. Or Amspita, which means... uh, unconditioned uses these words synonymously nirvana is the deathless and all these terms are pre-buddhist terms but the buddha didn't create any of these terms you can find the term nirvana in the upanishads and you can find the term deathless before the buddha referring to brahma referring to god but the buddha Uh, loved irony and so he would take terms like this and he would rework them to mean something else the Buddha described nirvana or the deathless as the end of greed the end of ill will and the end of delusion which lately I've been thinking more about in terms of boredom. And this was a new idea of the time in the, at the time, which is that the deathless is the ending of greed. The ending of wanting. And when the Buddha says the deathless, he's not referring to our physical death, He's referring to inner death. How now we are dead. Dead to what's important. Dead to clarity. Dead to our own innate creativity. I think you know what I'm talking about. 
It's the frozen block of ice. How many of you saw this week such repetitive habits that you can see how it's like being dead? And when you're in that place, there is greed, there is anger, and there's confusion or boredom. So when the Buddha says deathless or nirvana, what he means is not dead. Deathless, i.e. not being numbed out in repetitive cycles. So, in other words, being dead is a state when we're truly not alive. We have energy, we have urgency, we have compulsions, but we're running around in circles. Still trying to please mom and dad. I have a friend who's an amazing writer, and uh, <clears throat> when his mother died, he couldn't write anymore. He stopped writing for a couple of years. Sat with him one morning, uh, not long after his mother died, in an airport in Denver. And uh, he said, oh, I think I'm starting to realize that I, I can't write because all this time I've been writing for her. So there are these moments in your life where you have some insight and something breaks through the habit. And that's the deathless. Now, one footnote. Because when you leave here, many of you will start looking up some of these texts and <laughs> reading. And Whenever you see capital letters, you should be on the lookout for capital letters. And when capital letters occur in yoga texts and Buddhist texts, all the flags should go up for you. Because in Sanskrit and in Chinese and in Korean and in Pali, there are no capital letters. There's no capital letters. But what's happened over time is translators have taken the word deathless and given it a capital D or Unconditioned, capital U, Nirvana, capital N, the Self, capital S. And we've done this because human beings don't know how to deal with impermanence. So we have to ratchet up certain ideas in spiritual teachings to make them permanent and eternal. There's an urge in all of us, you've been watching it for a week, to want something more than this. Just doing the dishes, just walking slowly, just watching the turtles. It's not enough. There has to be something behind it. So by capitalizing things like deathless, we make it into something so big that we actually miss 
its importance in each moment, which is that in each moment you can be deathless. And then we think deathless is like some state you have to get to, or nirvana is some place we have to get to. Also, in Sanskrit, Pali, Chinese, and Korean, there's no prefix the. So we always see the deathless. Or we see like awakening with a capital A or enlightenment with a capital E. But we can live unconditioned by repetition, by compulsion unconditioned by greed. You know what I'm talking about because you've had these moments throughout the retreat. A moment where the selfing stops and you take interest in what's there. That's Nirvana. It doesn't have a capital N. And it occurs in the absence of conceptualizing. And that's why meditation is the heart of religious life, of spiritual life. So, how do you do this? <laughs> we might feel like uh, yeah, I want to live like that. <laughs> well, it starts in meditation practice. This is the meditative school. Welcome. <laughs> so in the Samyutta Nikaya, there's a story uh, where the Buddha is on retreat with a community. And... Um, <clears throat> Every year there would be a few different retreats depending on the season. So the Buddha was in the rains retreat, which is a three-month retreat. Maybe next year we should do this for three months. <laughs> I couldn't read the laugh. <laughs> I could read that one, though. So um, they're in the rains retreat, and uh, some locals are nearby, and the locals start wondering, what does the Buddha do when he sits? What's he doing when he sits? And they ask some of the monks and nuns, what is the Buddha actually doing when he's sitting? It's a fair question. And the monks and nuns start talking together and they say to each other, yeah. <laughs> the Buddha is perfectly enlightened. So what's he doing? Why does he have to keep sitting? Have you ever thought about this? What's he doing? So one of them gets the courage and says, I'm going to go talk to Gotama. I, I should also just mention as a small footnote that a lot of scholars nowadays say that the Buddha would have been referred to as Gotama. That it's not until much later that the name gets changed to the Buddha. So that's an important thing. So people say to Gotama, you know. But now we say, oh, the Buddha, which you can't do, by the way. 
it's important, I think, just to like keep this person human. And uh, so they get up the nerve, and one of them goes to the Buddha and says, many of us are wondering, when you're sitting, what are you doing? (laughs) (laughs) So the Buddha says, residence, during the rains, I dwell in concentration through mindfulness of breathing. This is a noble dwelling. This is a sacred dwelling. This is a Tathagata's dwelling. It's through concentration on mindfulness of breathing that one can truly say this. What can he say? Through concentration of breathing, he can say three things. It's a noble dwelling. It's a sacred dwelling, and it's the Tathagata's dwelling. What he's saying is, in meditation practice, there is an authenticity that one reaches, where you're dwelling in the most sacred space. Which is noble, which is... uh, a Tathagata's dwelling. And that's what he's doing. He's dwelling. It's interesting because um, this word vihara is the word for dwelling. If you go to Burma or Thailand, um, when somebody says, I'm going to the vihara, it means I'm going to the monastery. And now the word vihara refers to a monastery, a school, a temple. It comes from the verb viharati, which means to dwell, to, to abide in. And so the first uh, term the Buddha uses is arya vihara. Arya means noble. So I think of this as upright. Mindfulness of breathing gives you an upright place to dwell. Then it's brahma vihara. Mindfulness of breathing is the dwelling place of the sacred. So, in that context, Brahma referred to God. So the Buddha is saying mindfulness of breathing is the dwelling place of the sacred. And it's a Tathagata's dwelling. Tathagata means uh, a true person, which I'm translating as authentic. It's the, it's the dwelling of authenticity. Somebody who's a true person, or as Lin Chi, uh, Zen master Lin Chi, the, uh, from the Rinzai tradition, Lin Chi says, a true person of no status. Isn't that beautiful? A true person of no status. That's the person kicking around the ice down the sidewalk in Mexico City. Or maybe you having a laugh, forgetting about yourself. So it's visceral. And this is something I think everybody should contemplate is, how should I dwell in this body 
on the earth. Maybe that's one of the most important questions, is uh, what does it mean to dwell on the earth right now? So Arya Vihara, to dwell in an upright way. Ethically, this means dignity, to live with integrity. And you can feel this when you're breathing. When you pay attention to your breathing, it lifts your posture. And when you have a lifted posture, you interact with the world in a different way. And since everything that you do is a posture, then you should always have your breath there. Because it influences how you interact with the world. And you'll see, as you continue this practice over the years, what's real. Not be fooled. You know, there's a story of Dogen coming out of a retreat, a 13th century Zen master coming out of retreat. And he's asked, you know, what, what, what did you realize in the retreat? And he says, I realized that the nose is vertical and the eyes are horizontal. <laughs> and I've always been really touched by this. Because maybe you have been looking at the maple tree day in and day out and you have a visceral experience of it that's deeper, a deeper kind of knowing than just knowing. And people might say to you after the treat, what did you, what did you realize? <laughs> and you should just say, the nose is vertical. <laughs> So then, near the end of this text that we've been looking at, uh, Gotama talks about um, the Eightfold Path, what we think of as the Four Noble Truths. So I want to just unpack that a little bit, since we've dealt with Nirvana. But first, let me just say that um, the word Buddhism is less than 200 years old. It was invented by a German academic to describe the teachings of the Buddha. If you go to Buddhist cultures, there's no Buddhism. There's Dharma. So we should try as much as we can not to use this word Buddhism. Because it refers to dogma and beliefs and rituals that I think in themselves don't have that much to do with the core of what we're exploring uh, together as a community, interacting with each other, sitting still, breathing, eating. So what is the core of the Dharma? What are the, the strands that make the Dharma the Dharma? that interact with different cultures and become different versions of Buddhism, 
But what, what is the core of these teachings? What are the core strands or the, the nucleic acid of the DNA of the Dharma? The, the meme. What is the meme that forms the core of the Dharma? A meme is the cultural equivalent of a gene. So what, what is that core that makes up the Dharma? <clears throat> well, if we clear away all the metaphysics, and we clear away the dogma, and we clear away most of the ritual, <clears throat> there are four things that make up the core of these teachings. Uh, there's been some amazing scholarship in this area, and the, the person who, whose work I concentrate on a lot is Stephen Batchelor. Um, and I think he's been kind of retranslating this in the last five or ten years. He follows somebody named Richard Gombrich, who follows somebody named K.R. Norman, who studies someone named Woodward. <laughs> you should follow all of them. <laughs> it's impossible. It gets worse and worse as you get deeper and deeper into it. Uh, uh, Stephen's way of summing up the... Was, what are you... So he, anybody who's studied anything related to the Buddha knows the Four Noble Truths. How many people have heard this term, the Four Noble Truths? Yeah. So um, basically, you know, most people don't buy this anymore. In academia, anyways. It hasn't gotten down to the level of Buddhists. Um, but when you say the Four Noble Truths, it sounds like there are these truths that are propositions that you have to believe. Like, life is suffering. How many of you have heard this one? Life is suffering, that you should believe life is suffering. If you're a Buddhist, you have to believe that your life is suffering. Some of you, it's not so hard. <laughs> but there are four main points, and let's just put aside the idea of a noble truth. And just look at the four main points. The first is suffering, dukkha. The second, samudaya, arising. The third, niroda, cessation. And fourth, marga, or in Pali, maga, a path. I'll say it again. So suffering, arising, ceasing, and a path. So, uh, one of Stephen's great insights, I think, uh, that he worked out on us in Toronto a few years ago, is to think of these not as noble truths, but as four tasks. The first task is to embrace dukkha, to embrace pain, stress, suffering, inadequacy, to embrace it, to turn towards it. Now, the word dukkha is shorthand 
for life. When you look into life, because it's ultimately impermanent, there's going to be dukkha. So in other words, the first task is not embracing suffering, although sometimes that's helpful. The first task should be translated as embracing life, which is the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. And when you think about it as a task, it keeps you out of being in a belief. So rather than the belief that you need to discover the first noble truth, you can think of it as a task, which is to turn towards life. The, the word that's used is parinyaye, which means... Uh, par means to hold. So that's why the, the idea of embracing, like... Sometimes it's translated as comprehending, which is kind of nice also. So you, you would, to comprehend something, not in the way that you comprehend something like in school, uh, but rather the way you, you know a piece of music. Is there a piece of music that you just, you just know every movement in the piece? Or knowing someone's body. You know when you meet somebody and you fall in love? Has anyone ever heard of this? <laughs> and, and there's enough goodness there with someone that you can actually get to know their body. And it's this exciting thing. Like how to embrace somebody's body. I feel this way about my kids. Like every once in a while I'm putting either of them to sleep and I feel like, oh, your body's grown a little bit. I don't know it anymore. And then I have to like investigate their like new armpit or my older son, the hair on his arm is going from blonde to black. And it's like, oh. So this is the first task is to embrace life. The second is when something is arising, let go. This is really important. If you want a helpful way to memorize this, think of E-L-S-A, Elsa. Embrace, let go, See and act. Embrace, let go, see and act. So, the first two go together. When something's arising, you know, like in psychology, we always say, like, what comes up? But if you pay attention to what comes up, what comes up in each moment is our innate reactivity. Our organism is always coming into contact with the environment, and so there's always reactivity. Always. And you can't stop it. 
there's always a biological reactivity to the stimulus inside us and in around us. But when we only operate out of the reactivity, we're dead. And when we let go of the reactivity, it's nirvana. It's the deathless. It's an unconditioned response to life. You see? And the automatic reactivity is a conditioned response to life. But you never stop being reactive. And I want to make that clear, because this is where Buddhism gets turned into a religion. Is one day you get to nirvana, and you stop having reactivity. This is absurd. Who believes this? How can people believe this? One day you'll get enlightened, perfectly enlightened, you won't have any more reactivity. <coughs> and you'll be free. That's why we have this idea of continuous practice. But if you put the two together, embrace and let go, here's the key, is how do you embrace and let go at the same time? And that's the heart of it. How do you embrace and let go of your reactivity at the same time? And one thing you can do in English that's really fascinating is differentiate between reactivity and responsiveness. In other words, how can we respond to life without reacting to it? How do we embrace life as we respond to life without getting stuck? And I really like the word response because it connotes responsibility. So there's a kind of ethical dimension to being responsive. <clears throat> Shinru Suzuki <clears throat> says, So the secret... I love when people start. So the secret <laughs> is just to say yes and jump off from here. Then there is no problem. It means to be yourself, always yourself, without sticking to an old self. Isn't that beautiful? I'll read it again. So the secret is just to say yes and jump off from here. Then there is no problem. It means to be yourself, always yourself, responsive, right? Without sticking to an old self. So embrace the life you're in, number one. Number two, letting go of reactivity as the embrace happens. Number three, what arises stops. Nirodaha. What arises, it stops. In Dzogchen practice, 
they use the term self-liberating. You can look at every thought that arises, liberates itself. Isn't that a nice idea? Every emotion that comes and catches you, if you pay attention to it, it liberates itself. So, when there is... when This is so important. I, I want to spend another hour on this part. When you have moments, when there's stopping of reactivity, you should really know that. And basically, in interviews, the only thing I'm doing is to try to help you see that. That space where you can stop and use that as a dwelling, a place to trust. That's nirvana. Even when it happens for one second, it's nirvana. And it's impermanent. Now don't tell anyone this, because it'll screw up their whole religion. But nirvana is not the goal of practice. Nirvana is the beginning of practice. When you have a moment of knowing stopping, of knowing the cessation of reactivity, just that moment of seeing that, which is actually, I would say, a moment when you're truly yourself, Tathagata, you're a Tathagata. It's so important that you know it. It's a different way of knowing your life. At one point, I don't know where, someone asked the Buddha, what is a Tathagata? And the Buddha says, one who one who speaks as they act and acts as they speak. Isn't that nice? One who speaks as they act and acts as they speak. In other words, it's a functioning person. It's not like a glowing cardboard person, perfect something on an altar. The Pali of this line is Niroda Sachi Karoti. Sachi means to behold. It's a beautiful word, Sachi. In other words, to, so when there's Niroda, when there's a stopping of reactivity, you should behold that. You should behold that. Really pay attention to that. And the reason why it's impermanent is because all of us live a double life. There's the life we're having right now, and then there's the life that we want to live. And this just seems built into being human. In other words, dukkha, suffering, can't go away because it seems part of human beings that we live um, in the present moment and we also live wanting something else. And this is great. Like children, you know, they always want another thing. 
And that's a beautiful thing because that's how they stretch themselves. They don't want the same thing. They want a new thing. It's really good to want a new thing. That's human. And that's always why there will be dukkha. And that's why we need to practice. Because we need to have times where that's resolved. And we need to really know that. To have an openness that's not reactive. And this leads to the fourth, acting. Which is the path, marga. Which is... uh, what should be cultivated. Embracing suffering, letting go of the reactivity, seeing, stopping, and then cultivating a path. And the Buddha defines the path here. He says, Right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. It doesn't mean right, like there's a right way to do it. It means right for the circumstances. So you could translate that as appropriate. Appropriate view, appropriate intention, appropriate speech, appropriate action, appropriate livelihood, appropriate effort, appropriate mindfulness, and appropriate concentration. And that's the path, and it should be cultivated. And when there is a lot of clinging, and a lot of craving, and a lot of reactivity, you can't see that those things are a path. And when you treat those things like your livelihood, like your effort, like your view, as part of the path, then it allows you to embrace life. You follow the path. And the path looks different for every single person in here. There's not a path, capital P, path. The word marga in Sanskrit. In, in uh, Chinese, the word is Tao. Literally means a road. Taoism literally means path-ism. <laughs> <laughs> and I think everybody here knows what it feels like when you're not on a path. So, I was having some email correspondence with Stephen about this, and he says he's changed his mind now. Instead of calling it the fourfold tasks, now he calls it the fourfold task. (laughs) It's interesting. So instead of saying embrace, let go, see, act as like four sequential things that you do, you see it as a fourfold task, all in one moment. You embrace, you let go, you see clearly, and you act is one thing. It's one task. It just has four different angles 
It's qualified in four different ways. And these four things are the strands at the core of these teachings that we call the Dharma. This is the core. So rather than propositions, I believe in life as suffering, I believe in the end of craving, I believe in the eightfold path, I follow this path, you know. Instead, we see it as one task that is what we're doing in each and every moment. And that's it. And that meme, that gene, can meet any culture. And every time it meets a different culture, it's going to be taken in in a different way, which is what we're doing here. Householders practicing this really old practice. So, let me start to conclude. The best way to start to conclude is with a poem. So, this is by probably one of the most beloved poets in Japan in the 20th century. Miyazawa Kenji. Um, Neither yielding to rain or yielding to wind, yielding neither to snow nor to the summer heat. With a strong body like that, without greed, never getting so angry, always smiling quietly, eating one and a half pieces of brown rice and bean paste and a bit of vegetables a day. In everything, not taking oneself into account, just looking, listening, understanding well and not forgetting. Living in the shadow of pine trees in a field, in a small hut thatched with misanthus. If in the east there's a sick child, going and nursing him. If in the west there is a tired mother, going and for her carrying bundles of rice. If in the south there's someone dying, going and saying, you don't have to be afraid. If in the north there's a quarrel or a lawsuit, going and saying, it's not worth it, stop it. In a drought, shedding tears. In a cold summer, pacing back and forth. Lost, called. Called a good-for-nothing by everyone. Neither praised nor thought a pain. Someone like this is what I want to be. So, I didn't write a poem today. But I would say, if in the North, some short-sighted people thought building a pipeline was a really good idea. I would go with indigenous communities, especially 
First Nations women? And I would say no. This is a really bad idea. Barack Obama, you have such a great opportunity right now to show that renewable energy creates jobs. And if in the South there were countries that were really suffering from the luxuries we have in the North and the pollution we're making, then I would try and live more frugally. And if in the East, my mum, who gets lonely sometimes, because my sister is so busy with her life, and my brother lives in Colorado, when I see her, I'll go for a walk with her in her favorite park. And when I hug her to say goodbye, I'll hug her really tight, make her feel like it was worth all the heartache I gave her. <laughs> and if in the West, where I move in three weeks, uh, I'm tired, I'll go uh, visit the trees and the ocean. So that's the kind of life that I want to live. So I hope you consider on this last night the kind of life that you want to live. in every direction. The Buddha ends the sutta saying, monks, don't forget, there are roots of trees and there are huts. Do not delay, meditate, or you will regret it later. So, don't forget this. There are roots of trees. And there are places to practice. Maybe this is a little fancier <laughs> than a hut. And maybe we eat more than one and a half pieces of brown rice. <laughs> We can care for elderly people. And we can care for women and children. And when someone's dying, we don't know how to help them. But we can just go sit with them. Some of you are working so hard, stretching your hamstrings, practicing yoga, as if that's going to open your body. But if you really want to open your body, you should just go spend more time with people who don't have as much privilege as you. And I promise it'll open your body. And this is called nirvana. Responding unconditioned to what's going on in you and around you. So thank you.